Well, good morning to the brave, as he said, the brave ones who got up and came out in the cold. I know there's many that, you know, the opportunity to study an epistle doesn't strike them as the most interesting way to study the Bible, largely because it doesn't have some of the appeal that other books of the Bible do. You know, epistles typically don't have the, the fascination of like an Exodus or the history of like a Genesis or the characters of like a Gideon or a Samson or whomever. But, you know, this is where our faith gets into the trenches. The, the, you know, to study an epistle is to study the real life of the body of Christ because they're all letters, they're all written to churches who were struggling in one way or another or needed encouragement. They were people, and those people were living lives virtually no different from your own. You know, you may think, oh, because it was 2,000 years ago, how could they relate to me? Well, within our walk as Christians, if you notice, the epistles don't talk a lot about how you wash your dishes or how you get to work. Or, they're talking about issues of the faith which are constant, which don't change because a 1,000 years has passed. So... These are letters written to you and I, and I think as a mature Christian, you move out of the kind of the Sunday school appreciation of your faith, and you begin to take a walk into the depths of the theology that backs up what you believe. Or, if you don't, you are at risk. You're, you're, you're easy prey for someone who would want to come in and tell you what you're supposed to believe in a way that's unbiblical. That's the problem with the Colossi Church. The Colossi church. This is a church where people had been taught or were being taught incorrectly what it meant to be a Christian. And Paul is in the midst of trying to, def to defend the faith against that false teaching from afar to a group he's never met, who may not necessarily respect what he has to say. So we're going to pick up where we left off with that introduction, back into Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I told you last time we met two weeks ago, this is where the fun stuff starts. Chapter 1 did a lot of good things to set up the, the issues, but chapter 2 is where Paul now begins to actually attack the false teaching in specific ways and offer alternative or, or give the correct view in response. So I'm going to back up. Just We have a lot to do today, but we have plenty of time. What I want to do is back up only far enough to give us the context of what's going on in chapter 2. And by back up, I only mean to chapter 2, verse 6, which we've already read. We read 6, 7, 8, and then a few verses beyond that. We're going to, but we didn't really get to them as much as I, I think we need to today. So... Let me open up in a quick prayer for a blessing on the Word, and then let's go into chapter 2, verse 6. Dear Father, the, uh, the day is cold and challenging, and uh, Father, the weather is, is something that gives us pause and reason to want to stay at home, but Father, you have given a, a heart to those in here to come anyway, to be a part of something today, Father, that they know will nourish them and warm them as the Holy Spirit can do that work. We praise you, Father, for the uh, energy and for the commitment this morning. May the Word, Father... Uh, be ever-present in our hearts and minds as we study it. May we give it the due time and respect in our attention. And, uh, Father, more than anything, I pray the Holy Spirit would be active to cause us to consider what it teaches us this morning and to move out from here ready to act upon it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, quick points of reminder. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. If you weren't here before, I think you'll pick it up nonetheless. In, in the verses immediately around chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is teaching on one principal point. And that was this. You hold on to your faith in the same manner by which it came to you in the first place. Add nothing to what you've received in the beginning. That may be a theme if you want to take that in your, as a note coming into the beginning of chapter 2. As you were saved, so continue. If what you received in the beginning was good enough that you could fairly call yourself a Christian, then a day later or a year later or a decade later, nothing more needs to be added to whatever it was you accepted on day one. For if it was good enough on day one, it's good enough forever. So that principle of 
as you were saved, so continue, is Paul's opening theme in chapter 2. Look what he says in 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. So again, I don't need to beat this dead horse, because we covered it a little bit last week, but it is so important to the rest of the chapter. This is the reason why he will say everything else that is in the chapter. In fact, before today is over, as we wrap up, you'll see this theme come back again. So if a simple childlike faith was enough in the beginning to give us the joy and the assurance of a new life in Christ, then and we had nothing to show for it in the moment, the day you were saved, you didn't have a whole list of works behind you that you could point to to explain why you were now being saved by God. You hadn't achieved all these great things. You were not a perfect person. You were not sinless in your own life. If all of those things being what they were could still allow you to enter into faith with Christ and become saved over that faith, then to continue from that moment thinking that now you have a bunch of stuff you've got to do denies the logic of how you became a Christian in the first place. If you're Christian on day one without the works, then why are they necessary after that? And I'm talking here, strictly speaking, about your salvation. I'm not talking about good works for other purposes. I'm saying, in order to be saved, why would you ever place works on the list of things required if on day one you considered yourself a saved Christ-believing individual with the assurance of eternity with God? Why would you have added anything to that? Now, that makes perfect sense, and for most of us, we've been taught, hopefully, in that thinking already. But it had to be an important point for, Christ, uh, for Paul to make to the Colossi church because their behavior and their attitude and some of the things they were being taught and were willing to accept brought this point into question. It made Paul have to ask the question again. Why are you willing to take on these new works if it wasn't required for you in the first place? He says in verse 7, be rooted in Him, built up in Him, established in Him, in our faith. Rooted just means that we were planted by His power into our faith. And it means that we achieve only what we achieve because we walk with Him. Established, by the way, it means secure. It's another word for secure. We are secure in Him. All right. Chapter 2, verse 8. Then he makes a comparison that sets up the rest of the chapter. So think of it as a logical argument. This is the trench warfare of our faith. If you've been saved by something that didn't depend on works, now he sets up this next point which takes you through the rest of the chapter. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. All right, so if you believe what he said in verses 6 and 7, then the use of that knowledge, the way I'm going to put that knowledge to, to use, is I'm going to do what he says in verse 8. I'm going to make sure that no one tries to take me captive. And if you think of that word, it has almost the connotation of a cult or of some group that wants to take you away from the mainstream and hold you captive by some false teaching. That's the principle. That's the picture he's drawing for us here. And even before we go into the text, I want you to think about the context of Colossae at this point. From this phrase and from some things you're going to read later in this chapter, it becomes evident that there were false teachers in this church who wanted people in that church to accept, for the lack of a better term, additions to Christ. They wanted people to believe there were additions to Christ necessary for them to be saved. And Paul refers to these things as deceptive human philosophy that's dependent on traditions and worldly principles. And before long, you're going to see some parallels in our own life 
that would fit into these categories. Paul warns that either we follow that kind of teaching, that's how he starts verse 8, if you're captive to these people, that means you're following this kind of human philosophy, or, as he ends verse 8, he says, depend on Christ. He sets these things up, juxtaposes them, he puts them in contrast to one another. That's how he's going to now take the rest of this chapter. From this point forward, he set up this choice. He said, okay, you know how you were saved, so don't take, be taken captive by false philosophy and human tradition. Instead, stay where you started, depend on Christ. Now, as I said last week, he sets up these two alternatives. He says the one first, he says the human tradition first, and then he ended with the depend on Christ. But he swaps those two things as he continues. So in verses 9 and beyond, he doesn't talk first about the human traditions. He leaves those for the, for the last. He starts by saying, let's just get straight what it means to depend on Christ. Let's just make sure we all understand what that looks like. So then he goes in verses 9 through 15 into a concise description of what it means when we say, depend on Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is how much of what is in here may not be well understood within the church, not not necessarily to everybody. And yet this is foundational. This is fundamental uh, Christianity 101. Verse 9, and I'll read actually the the whole section here that he uses to describe what it is to depend on Christ. Verse 9 all the way through verse 15. It says, For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Alright, so there's, you can tell just by reading it, there's pieces and sections, there's little statements being made, all of them just piled up. So you have to look at it that way. You have to start to take it apart. But this goes easier than you think. And there's some interesting consequences coming out of what he's just said. What it means for us to depend on Christ. Number one, he said the salvation process, and I should also keep saying that. This is about salvation we're talking about. How you became a believer. We're not necessarily getting into the details of what is expected of a believer after their salvation. That's another area of doctrine, of teaching. Sanctification is the term. That's not in view right now. What he's talking about right now is this fundamental question about those who are Christian, what does that mean? What does it mean to depend on Christ? So it's a, it's a salvation discussion right now. He says, the salvation pro- process was accomplished by Christ's work. All of the work required for us to be saved was done by Christ. All of it. And then he begins, and he uses a play on the Greek words here, which you wouldn't know in English, but in the back, background, if you will, in the Greek, he makes a little play on words here to emphasize it. He says, Christ is God in bodily form. That's that opening phrase when he says he is the fullness. The word for fullness there in the Greek is a form of the Greek word pleiru. And pleiru is used in verse 10, where he says, you have been made complete. Complete is pleiru. 
a very similar word, a version of that word is being used earlier in verse 9 when he says Christ is the fullness of deity. So by using these two words sort of close to each other in the Greek, the sense you get out of it if you were reading it in the Greek is that Christ was completely God in physical form and likewise we are complete in Christ. So while Christ was completely God, when we come to faith, we are completely in Christ. As much as Christ is God, we are in Christ at the point we are saved. So if you're saying that on the day you believed, you were somehow incomplete for the sake of salvation, you were closer, but you weren't quite there, you weren't going to quite make it to heaven, you still had some more things to do, if you were willing to accept that, then you'd have to go back to that verse in chapter 2, verse 9, and say, well, I guess Christ himself wasn't completely God either then, is he? Because Paul is saying, what is one is true for the other. As much as Christ is God, you are in Christ. So wait, if you don't think you're enough in the faith, then you're also saying Christ wasn't enough in God himself. That there was something about him that was incomplete. That his work wasn't good enough. That whatever he accomplished on the cross wasn't enough to save you, or it was, in which case you're complete in him. One goes with the other. The logical argument built on that word play. Paul does this amazing job of addressing every single deficit you had as a human being before God. An unbeliever has no prospect of spending eternity in God's presence. The only prospect they have is eternal judgment. What has to be rectified so that that's not going to happen? What, do, what does God have to do in order to make sure that an individual does not end up in hell? Well, there are several things that have to be fixed, so to speak. Christ fixes all of them. The first way in which you are complete, in verse uh, 10, is to say that he has dominion over all rule and authority. These words for rule and authority, the same words being used in chapter 2 of Ephesians to describe the enemy, the devil, and all his uh, power. We're not talking here about human authority. We're not talking about kings on earth. We're talking about Satan, and we're talking about Satan's angels, which we call demons. So he has rule over that realm. That's what's being discuss, discussed here. Okay? When Adam fell in the garden, he placed the authority of the enemy over mankind. So as it stands to now, we share in the judgment reserved for Satan. The lake of fire was produced for Satan and for the enemies, uh, the, the angels that fell with Satan, as we're told in Scripture. It's reserved for the demons and for the angels, that, that, or for Satan and the demons. However, when Adam fell, he placed mankind under the dominion of that evil enemy of God. So we now share in the same judgment, the same outcome as the enemy does. Whatever God has reserved for the enemy is also reserved for those who are under his authority. All mankind is born, as Paul calls it, as a son of disobedience. That's the term he uses in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, we were all once sons of disobedience. This is the reality of Scripture. On the day we're born, we are born in the nature of Adam. We are born, we inherit his nature and his condition, and therefore we share in the judgment that Adam brought upon the world. We share in the judgment that is due Satan. Only by faith in Christ does someone move out of that realm and under the dominion and authority of Christ. And therefore, rather than share in the disposition of the enemy, we now share in the inheritance of Christ. So the first thing being in Christ did or accomplished was it took us out of the dominion of the enemy. Therefore, we no longer share in his future. We are no longer the sons of disobedience, as Paul calls it. We are now the sons of God. That is the fundamental switch that happens at the point you believe in Christ. Consequently, we no longer fear death 
because of the enemy's disposition. This is another principle of Scripture. principle of Scripture is that the natural human condition of the unsaved individual is to fear death. You fear it. And it drives you your whole life. I don't just mean that you sit around worrying about it. I mean you sit around trying to forestall it, if that were even possible. You know, that's what's behind a lot of what you see going on in culture today. Well, not just today, but of all time. The desire to have a lot of money. Ultimately, that's a protection against what could happen to me in life. The ability to change my physical body. Health, you know, all the different ways we try to improve our health. All the different ways we try to change our cosmetic appearance. All the different, you know, these are all, in a way, vanity driven by a desire to pretend that death isn't coming and I can make it stay away. I can pretend I'm not getting older. I can pretend I'm not near the grave. I can pretend that death isn't actually going to happen to me. Because instinctively, God has placed in every man the fear of death because of what follows death for the unbeliever. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. Some believe it may be Paul himself. He says this. Now, he's talking here about believers. He's talking about what happens in terms of a change for believers. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... Christ himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. By dying as Christ did and conquering death in his resurrection, he gained dominion over those who would believe. And in that new dominion, what does Paul say? He might free, set free, those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And as a slave to that fear, you're prone to do all kinds of crazy things to avoid death, thinking it's somehow possible. But now, as a child of of God in Christ, not only do I not fear death, in some way I look forward to it. I know that's an odd feeling, because for the most part, we we, we have to get used to thinking that way, because we grow up as the child of disobedience who is afraid of death. But the reality is, the sooner I'm out of this body... And this fallen world, the better. You know, there's a fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever when it comes to death. For the unbeliever, it's as good as it gets now. At death, it gets worse. For a believer, this is as bad as it gets. And at death, it gets better. It's a completely different outcome at death. So the first way in which Christ took care of that issue or or made us complete was that he did away with the fear of death and our dominion under the enemy. Secondly, the believer is complete in Christ by having undergone a spiritual circumcision. That's when he starts talking about circumcision. Now, we all know what regular earthly circumcision is, and so we're sitting here wondering, well, that's a strange thing to throw in at this point. What are you getting at, Paul? Well, he makes a comparison to the spiritual from the physical, which is how circumcision is used in Scripture. Circumcision, in the case of the human tradition, is the cutting away of flesh on the male. In the case of spiritually speaking, the, the circumcision he's talking about here is the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. What is really interesting is the way Paul qualifies or explains what he means when he uses that term. If you look in the verses I've already read, in verse 11, he says, the circumcision which is the removal of the body of flesh. What Paul is saying here is there is a circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, the cutting away of what is not pure and then the making of your heart pure. But what does that really mean? Because you know he's not cutting on the inside of your body. What Paul says is it's a spiritual change followed by the physical change because one day your nature, your spirit, will be cut away from the body that it is now attached to. 
And that body, all of it being a, a sinful container, a contaminated container, it all needs to go away. God needs to replace this body because until this body is replaced, you will continue to feel the urge to sin. Though you know better, though you wish you wouldn't, you still do it. That's all. That's the human condition we exist in right now. But Paul says in verse 11, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That in other words, in the short, in the immediate term, you're seeing a spiritual change in your nature by how God has, has circumcised the heart. That's the term. But in reality, there is yet a physical circumcision awaiting for the believer. It is the point at which he separates your spirit from your evil, sinful body forever. And the body is in the grave, and you are resurrected into a new body. That is the literal circumcision. That, the one we've done on children simply pictures the long-term, ultimate one that God is going to do to any believer, which is separate you from your body in that sense. And so, problem number two for an unbeliever Problem number one is, I belong to the devil. Got to fix that. Christ did that. Problem number two for the unbeliever is, okay, but what are you going to do about this body? Because this body is corrupted. It's sinful. So I can't go into God's presence with this body. Even if I feel differently spiritually, I still have a body of sin. Okay, we'll fix number two for you. Christ will remove your body from your spirit upon the death of the body and grant you a new body because of what he did on the cross to conquer death in his body. Because... The body must be judged for its sin. He took on that judgment for us. When he died, the judgment was poured out on his body rather than on yours and mine. So we can avoid that punishment, and yet God can still be just in having carried out that punishment against someone who didn't deserve it by having transferred our punishment to Christ. Third way he has made this complete, Paul says. That sinful nature itself was dispensed with having been buried in Christ. That's the picture of baptism. You know, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism just pictures something that already happened inside you spiritually. Because I've believed, I want to show somebody that. Christ gave us the way to do that. Go into the water and come up, which pictures being buried and coming up out of the water alive again, a new man. That's all baptism is doing. is picturing what's happened to you spiritually already. So the second thing that had to happen was I had to have this new nature given to me. Or third thing, I guess, is I had to have this new spiritual nature appointed to me. And you can kind of see where Paul is, is leading here, right? If you've had all these issues in your life dealt with by Christ, it starts to beg a bigger question. Well, what more is there that needs to be done? Exactly. Exactly. We ought to be asking that question to anyone who would teach us that there is something to do. Now Paul begins to turn up the pressure. In verses 13 through 15, he reminds them that all of these things, the three things I just mentioned, moving us out from the dominion of the enemy, giving us the promise of a new body while also giving us a new spirit. The three fundamental things that have to be fixed if we're going to appear before God. He says, by the way, he did all these things on your behalf before you even knew they were happening. Look what he says. He says, while they were still dead in their trespasses, the word dead there, you may know this, necros, where we get necrophilia from is, is a, an example of the word. It literally in the Greek means a dead body. A corpse. So, while you were a corpse, and so the picture here is you were like the walking dead. I mean, you had a physical body that had life. You were animated. You weren't literally lying on a slab. But from God's point of view, you were dead. You were a corpse. And I don't just mean because of where you were eventually going to go. That's not like saying you're as good as dead. No, he's saying you were dead. Dead spiritually. You were literally without any life vis-a-vis -vis God. You had no interest in God. The scripture says no one seeks after God. No, not one. So there's no such thing as the natural seeker. 
In biblical terms, there's no such thing as a human being who walks around truly trying to discover God and then one day finds it. Now, there are people who walk around trying to discover religion. It's a fundamentally different issue. Big difference between saying, I want some kind of religion. What do you got for me? Let me choose one. That's good. That's good. Let me try some of this. That's fundamentally different than looking up to the one true living God and saying, I put myself in your hands and I want mercy from the living God. That, we're told, no one ever does in Scripture. Or Scripture tells us no one ever does that. Because you can't. Any more, any more than a dead body laying on a slab has the power to say, you know, I'd like to be alive again. Oop, let me just raise myself. That's why the picture is of a dead body, to make it clear to us that it's just as impossible for a human being to, on their own, decide they want to believe in God, the real God now I'm talking, as it is for a dead body to say, I want to be alive again. It's that impossible. So, while they were still dead, God made the Colossian church, those in the church, alive in Christ. Then he says, while they were yet still uncircumcised in the flesh, he did that. What that refers to is, like he just talked about it earlier, it refers to their sinful nature. That sin nature that they carried from birth, having inherited it from Adam. They were not only sinning, making mistakes in their life, they were also sinful. Are you sinful because you sin? Or do you sin because you're sinful? Scripture teaches the latter. It is not the case that we are born in some happy good state, and because we sin, God sees us as sinful. That's not the biblical view of sin. Scripture says we sin because we're born with a sin nature that knows nothing else. And then God steps into our life and changes us and gives us a new awareness of what life without sin could be. So he is reminding the Colossian church of this fundamental point. Because if God is the one who stepped in and brought them to life in Christ, then it begs the question yet again, what is it God needs you to do? Clearly, nothing. Not in terms of salvation. God forgave our transgressions, all the sins, and this is another point that I think is helpful to remember as a Christian, all the sin that will mark your earthly life from birth to death, all of that sin was forgiven in the moment you were saved. It wasn't just what was happening in your life up to that moment. It's all sin, all transgressions, he said. He said we were complete in the forgiveness that God offered in the moment we were saved. So that doesn't excuse sin. I mean, you, you can go too far now and you can say, well, woohoo, I can do whatever I want now. Well, there's a lot of scripture to talk about what's expected of a believer. But none of it says you must do something to be saved. It's all with respect to having been saved, here's what God expects of you. But in the moment you were saved, you were already freed of all the debt you owed for all transgressions your whole life before, after, and otherwise around that moment of salvation. It's a once and for all forgiveness. He makes it even clearer in the next phrase. He says, he canceled our debt. The word canceled in the Greek, it literally is, is this. It means smearing away the impressions made by wax. So in a, in a document where there was a seal of wax on that document that formed sort of the signature on the document in a contract, he's using a term here in the Greek that literally means to just smear that wax away so that there's no impression left on that document. So it's an, it's an idea that the turned what was a valid decree into something that's no longer valid against you because it's been smeared away, can't be brought back. You know, in the time that 
Paul lived when they crucified people, they used to take, let's say a criminal, of someone who was a thief, they would take the charge against that person. The, the reason they're being punished, in other words, the law that they broke, the accusation against that person. And they would write it, you know, this man is uh, you know, found guilty of stealing, blah, blah, blah. And they would nail that above the man's head on the cross. That was so that anyone watching this crucifixion would understand, well, this guy's getting killed for that offense. All right? What they nailed above Christ's head, by the way, was king of the Jews. His offense, if you will, was that he was the king of the Jews. In the case of what Paul is saying here, he is saying that when Jesus was on that cross, while you could only see the words king of the Jews above his head, from God's perspective, he took all the sin, all the debt we had, all the punishment we had coming due, all the offenses we had committed, our whole life, for all human beings who would ever believe in Christ, not just those who may have lived in Christ's day, not just those who lived before him, but you and I. He knew you and I would come one day, we would believe, and on that basis he would be able to say our debt has been paid. He, from his perspective, wrote all of our offenses, and Paul says, nailed them to Christ's cross. As Christ was dying, it wasn't just king of the Jews above his head, it was every offense every believer has ever committed their entire life, and he was paying for them all in that moment. That's what he means when he says it's been canceled. So here again, if I come to you and I say, hey, good thing you're a Christian, glad you're believing, but you know you've still got a few things left to do, you would turn and say, no, 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 wait a minute. His death on the cross paid for everything. There is nothing left to pay for. I have no more I need to do. That's what Paul is teaching here. He ends with that comment about rulers and authorities again, saying the demonic realm has nothing left to accuse us of. It's just a fun... I think that's helpful to remember that as the enemy is always active, accusing the saints, when he comes before God and he says, by the way, so-and-so, did you see what they did yesterday? What God is able to do in that moment is turn to them and say, yes, but I had that debt already nailed and attached to Christ's cross. We already have that one paid for too. There's nothing the enemy could say that he can't turn and say, yeah, but that was on the cross already as well. He now has set up what it means to depend on Christ. Depending on Christ means you're complete in those three ways, and now because he's done all that for you, there's nothing left to do. There's no debt unpaid. Now look what he says. Knowing that you depend on Christ in those ways, now what does it mean to be taken captive by empty human philosophy? What, is an example, what are examples of that happening? Well, that's what chapter 2, verses 16 through 19 begin to show us. And see if you don't see some things from your world today that are reflective in some of these statements. Therefore, he says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So Paul now starts to move toward this discussion of human philosophies and traditions. The very first word to notice is the very first word. Therefore. So here's logical argument. If you accept what I've taught all the way up to verse 15 then you must be prepared to accept the consequences of it. You can't argue with the outcome if you haven't argued with what I've taught already. So, unless someone in here, for example, was prepared to stand up now and challenge the notion that we are complete in Christ, 
If you're not willing to do that, then what is about to be taught is the necessary logical consequence of what we believe to be true about Christ. So everything that follows here has to be true if you believe you're complete in Christ. Or to say it differently, if you think there is some kind of restriction or rule around what you eat or what you drink or what what celebrations you observe or what day you go to church or any of those issues, if you think there is something substantive about those things, that, that it matters which one of those things you do, then we have to step back into the earlier part of this chapter and go back and understand, well, where is it you're incomplete in Christ? What is it you think you're achieving with regard to your salvation by those things? And if you can't find something, then you're back to square one again. Well, I guess these things really don't matter after all. That's the point being taught. Look where he starts. He says, let no one act as your judge. This is an important beginning statement here because it it explains the danger of what's about to come about why these things are problematic. And and it also teaches us a very important principle about judging. Men can only be our judge in these ways if we allow them to be our judge. That's the first principle. Because he makes it clear, you have the control. Don't let these people act as your judge. So, I might try to judge you and tell you, hey, you've got to stop that and do this and whatever, on issues that are not relevant to salvation, I'm talking. And you can turn right around to that person and say... I don't care what you think. You know, let me show you what Scripture says, and if you're interested, I'll teach you, but if not, I don't want to hear any more of it. That's what he means by don't let them act as your judge. He uses these examples. First one is food and drink. He, he, and these are all examples. This is not an exclusive, exhaustive list. He's simply using examples to illustrate the point. Now, in the day of this letter, the issue would mainly have been one of Jewish dietary restrictions. In other words... While you and I don't live according to the Jewish dietary laws, that was probably the principal issue in the church in their day, where men had come in, into the church, and tried to institute some of the Jewish restrictions that existed in the law and make the church observe them, which is really ironic because Colossae was not a Jewish church. It was a Greek church. So here's a church that was never following the Jewish traditions when they were unbelievers. Now that they're believers, they're going to start agreeing to live under a Jewish law which is what was going on. In fact, the history, uh, some of the books that, that I've read on the history of the time say that these Judaizers, that's the term we give to these people, the ones who would come in and try to make a new Christian church follow Jewish rules, they were literally following Paul around. So as Paul would go into a city and teach there for a while, they would come in sort of secretly after him, and wherever he went, they would follow with their teaching, trying to always get into somebody's head about, well, whatever Paul said, that's fine, but he didn't cover everything. And there's this other aspect that you need to follow. You need to follow the Jewish rules. Well, that's the group he's contending with here. In the case of the Jewish restrictions, it would have been things like you can't eat ham, right? You can't eat pork. You have to, eat, you have to be going through ritual cleanliness before you can touch certain things. You can't have the milk of the, of the mother mixed with the meat of the lamb and blah, 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 blah. All those rules. They were trying to bring that back in. That's what Paul's talking about here. It also has to do with this debate over eating meat sacrificed to idols. This is a little interesting tie-in if you know the teaching out of 1 Corinthians. What was going on in that day very commonly in Greek towns in the diaspora, which is where this city is located, meat was typically rarely eaten. You know, you and I today, we think of abstaining from meat as a pretty rare thing, generally. In their day, it's the other way around. Having meat was rel- relatively rare. Most people didn't have the money and, the, and you know, it was an expensive thing to eat meat. So, when you saw meat, it was almost always sacrificed to idols before it was sold in the shops. So, it was almost impossible to walk into a shop and buy meat without 
suspecting at least that it had been sacrificed to idols before it was put on sale. That was an, almost a given anywhere in the diaspora. So if you were, let's say, you overemphasized eating as an issue for the Christian in the way that Paul is warning about here, then you might come into a group of Christians and say, you should never eat meat because it's almost inevitable that it's been sacrificed to idols and we can't do that. And act as a judge over someone who would say, you know what, I don't even know where it came from. I just know I saw it in the shop, I bought it. Don't be my judge. But to that group, there was this teaching going on. And Paul puts it this way when he teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what Paul says now in light of what we just learned in this letter to the Colossians and you'll see it come together. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. See what he's talking about there? Look, go into the market, eat anything you want, just don't ask any questions. Because if you ask the question of the man behind the counter, was this sacrifice to idols? And he says, yes, now you can't eat it. Because there's a rule? Because your salvation's at risk? No, because he's your neighbor. Because of your witness to that man. Who now says, oh, Christians, they'll eat meat sacrificed to idols. I guess they don't think any differently than the rest of the world. But if you were to ask the question and the man behind the counter were to give you the answer, now you know and you know he knows you know, (laughs) right? You've got to stand there and say, well, you know, I can't eat that now after all because I believe in the one true living God who's told us we are not, you know, blah, 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 there's your witness. That's what he's talking about here. He says, all things are lawful, but not everything is good, meaning profitable, edifying, building people up in the truth. Not everything will do that for sure. And he says, eat anything sold in the meat market, but just don't ask questions for conscience sake so that you don't pollute your conscience, so that you're not intentionally, knowingly doing something that sends the wrong message to this, this neighbor, this person who could otherwise perhaps know the truth. So, back to Colossae now. Let no one be your judge with respect to food or drink in this way, to say that there is a rule when in fact there is no rule. There is nothing on God's green earth you can't eat, spiritually speaking, from God's perspective. Now, Let's be clear about something, though. We're not saying that you can't set up for yourself restrictions of your own desire or making for reasons of your own, be them spiritual or otherwise. We're not talking about what you do to yourself, right? He says, let no one else act as a judge of you. We're talking about someone who would take their convictions, whatever those convictions might be, and try to transfer them to somebody else and say to somebody else, you shouldn't do this because I've determined that it's bad. Well, if you've determined it's bad, then you shouldn't do it. But I don't have that problem. You know, and it doesn't have to be rude, of course. I'm making fun of it. But there are plenty of ways in which I have chosen to live my life and my family's chosen to live our lives that we feel convicted about, that we feel God is directing us down this road. We're not confused about its meaning. We're not looking at it as a necessity for salvation. We're trying to be obedient to what God's put on our hearts. That's all. But that's a big difference. That's a far cry from me turning around to the next person and saying, you know, God convicted me, we shouldn't do this, so you ought to do it too. That is legalism, and the church is ripe with it at times. That's, been our, that's sort of been the ball and chain of the Christian church, is this way of taking what God lays on our individual hearts, but then turning it into rules that for those who are complete in Christ, as every believer is, are not necessary. They're just flat out not necessary. Now, 
because of time, today I won't take off into a, a, a sidebar here that it, we probably should go into next week or next time we meet, which is, well, when are rules, corporate rules, something we should observe and follow? When do others in the church have rights to tell us what to do and how to do it? Because there is plenty of that in Scripture. The easy answer for today, though, is that as long as they're not being applied to you and I as a means of establishing or maintaining salvation, then they might very well be rules we should observe for other reasons. But if they've been set up as a necessity for salvation, either to, hold, either to have it or hold on to it, then it's heresy, it's wrong, it's, it's not biblical, and we need to contend with it on that basis. So the rule itself is irrelevant. The meaning or the purpose behind it is what I'm talking about. So for those who would say you can't eat or can't drink because of salvation issues, they're wrong. The second issue is one of festivals, which is actually a very common or current day one for us in the church today. At least that's in my experience. Again, in the day of the church here, it would have been Jewish festivals. The annual seven festivals that were observed every year on the Jewish calendar. Again, if you came out of a Jewish heritage and now you're a Christian, the question is, well, how many of those things do we still need to do? And the answer is, you don't have to do any of them. Do whatever you want. You want to observe a Seder meal at Passover because you think it's a neat tradition and you want to observe it? Go for it. Just don't tell someone else they have to. It's not a requirement. Now, that was their day. What do you think the issues are today for our church, for any church today? What would be a festival today that would get people a little nervous? Halloween, Halloween right? So, a good Christian doesn't observe Halloween. Let no one act as your judge in respect to a festival. Period. Now, again, could there be reasons why it might be good or in one case or not good in another? Oh, of course. But that's an individual decision based on what God is doing in the heart of each individual and convicts them accordingly. I could argue, for every example you might give me of where it's harmful in the body of Christ for Christians to observe Halloween, I could concoct a, lit a legitimate example of the opposite, of where participating gave somebody an opportunity to witness where participating gave an opportunity for someone to build a relationship, uh, to, to, to build friendships, you know, to be an influence for the good in some other group's life. I mean, there's just as many examples on each side. So which one is true for you? This is the part about being a Christian that actually takes the maturity. It's not in a rule book. What's right for you is on your heart as the Holy Spirit leads, as God will provide, as you seek his guidance in those decisions. But if you're inclined to say, no, I don't have time for God, I don't want to listen to him, I just want a rule book then you've already missed the maturity, what Paul refers to in verse 18 of the prize. He says, let no one defraud you of your prize. What is the prize of Christianity? And I don't just mean, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying salvation. That's clearly the, the, the prize, if you will, of being in faith. But I'm talking in the, in the context of what he's describing here. Our freedom is the prize. You have been bought for a price. You have been granted the freedom that now comes from having been made complete. See, before you were a believer, what you did mattered in the sense that you were always troubled by your sin and working to make up for it, though that was impossible. You couldn't have done it if you tried. Now that you are a believer in Christ and complete, the freedom now is one of knowing, I don't have to work for my salvation. I don't have any demands on me now for salvation's sake. So I'm free. I'm free to make these decisions based on the Holy Spirit's leading without respect to my salvation, without worry. That's a prize. That's the liberty we have in Christ. That's the freedom we have in Christ. Why would you let someone defraud you out of it? I love the word defraud. Because of how you've given it away. You've allowed yourself to come under rules now that you don't have to be under, but yet you're going to live under them because somebody else has convinced you it's something you have to do. Don't let someone do that. 
So if you're living according to the Holy Spirit, you'll have things you'll feel comfortable doing and other things you'll know not to do, but it will be because of what God has taught you, not because of what someone externally is trying to force upon you. And of course, in all of this decision-making, you have the Word as the guide. I mean, the, the truth of Scripture continues to rule in our lives. That never goes away. For the last minute here, let's just cover the last one, the final issue that he mentions. One that is still an issue in the church today. The Sabbath. Okay, so... The Sabbath was given to the Jews as a picture of Christ in this way. You'll work all these days, you'll work six days a week, but then one day a week on Saturday, you got to rest from your work. But where the shadow was incomplete was that, yeah, but on Sunday you had to go back to work. The rest wasn't permanent. It was a temporary rest. It gave you a feeling of rest. It kind of was like a taste of the rest, but then work started again. Whereas the picture, the shadow, was incomplete, you know, just a sliver of the truth, it pointed us to the real thing, which is Christ. Now, if I rest in Christ, I'm truly at rest perpetually. There's no more going back to work in the issue of salvation, which is how it was meant as a picture. I'm at rest perpetually because Christ did the work. The picture was in the Sabbath day. So now, do I need to observe a Sabbath day in the strict sense? Do I need to spend one day of my week doing nothing? Well, only if God leads you to feel that way, because that's your option, but not as a requirement of Scripture, because you now rest in the truth. When he says in verse 17, that these things are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance is Christ. This is the comparison he's making. If you looked around, you could see somebody coming from around a corner, and at first all you see is their shadow cast in front of them. And by the shape of the shadow, you recognize the person. You know them, and you see the shadow, you go, oh, I know who that is. So you're looking at the shadow, knowing who it is. But as soon as they appear around the corner, do you continue to look at their shadow? You know, they're standing here and their shadow's over here and you're talking to their shadow while they're standing right here? No. As soon as they appear, you ignore the shadow and you talk to the real thing. That's what these things were. As they were given in the law, the food and dietary restrictions of the law, the Sabbath as it was given in the law, those things were always meant to be a shadow of Christ. And once Christ showed up, you ignore the shadow. Because to continue to pay attention to the shadow is disrespectful to the truth, to the thing it pointed you to. Sabbath is no different. I mean, there's reason to go to church regularly. That's held out in the Scripture apart from just the issue of the Sabbath. But which day you go and how you use that day and whether you have a day at all and whether you use the same day every week or choose it as a day of rest or go out and work just as hard, that's up to you. That is the freedom you have in Christ because you now enjoy the real Sabbath of your rest in the Lord. The shadow of the Sabbath, the one day a week you men used to rest, doesn't apply, doesn't have any meaning for us anymore in light of the real having come. See, the benefit of the freedom in Christ is I no longer have a list of rules I keep in order to be holy. I'm holy by Christ's work in terms of salvation, I'm saying. Now I have an obligation to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and through that sanctification will come and I will grow more holy in my behavior so that it catches up with my position before God as it exists right now. So I'll be back in two weeks in here. So let's close in prayer and thank you again for your patience. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for the freedom we have in Christ by our faith. I ask you, Father, that as we go out from here that we would not uh, abuse that, that freedom, certainly. We would not... Uh, seek it for our own advantage and, and turn it, Father, into a license for sin. For we know that is not what you've given it to us for. It's not the heart of a believer, Father. It is, uh, it is an abuse of our freedom. 
But rather, Father, I pray that we would take that freedom and use it to its fullest extent so that we may serve you, Father, in all the ways you would call us to serve. We would not be uh, defrauded of the prize of liberty. We would not be taken captive, Father, by teaching that limits how we might serve you in our freedom. And in all these things, Father, I pray we would just praise your name to those who would ask about that freedom we enjoy. And we would explain to them, Father, about the complete state we have in Christ before you. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching through the Word, and I pray that we would come back in uh, due time, Father, according to your will, to complete our study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.